Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, in our uh, first study of Jonah, Jonah chapter one, we thought about uh, how God is a sending God, that part of God's nature. God is ascending God, so much so that he sent himself, amen? And then secondly, in Jonah chapter two, we thought about how God is a gracious God. He rescued Jonah, he showed Jonah his grace, he didn't decimate Jonah, he gave Jonah a second opportunity, he rescued his man, so God is a gracious God. And today I wanna talk to you from Jonah chapter three about how God is compassionate. God is compassionate. Uh, This beginning, though, of chapter three, it does mark the second half, the beginning of the second half of the book of Jonah. Uh, The book of Jonah really is divided up neatly into two parts, and there's a lot of similarities between the first half of Jonah and the second half of Jonah. For instance, in both the first and second half, they start with God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach a specific message. Um, In both the first and half part of the book of Jonah, Jonah then goes and speaks to non-believing people. In the first half, it's the sailors on the boat. In the second half, it's the people of Nineveh themselves. And in both halves of the book, uh, the, the ending of each portion is of Jonah having a conversation with God that has a little bit of a miraculous nature to it. So he's calling out to God in chapter two from the belly of a fish, and in chapter four, on the outskirts of Nineveh, after God sends a miraculous plant and then a worm to eat that plant, Jonah has another conversation with God. And the second half of the book of Jonah is not just the second half of the book, it's also a second opportunity or second chance for the prophet Jonah. And we know of God this way, don't we? We know that he's the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, hundredth chances, that's God. And he, uh, the same God who gave Abraham and uh, Moses and uh, David and Peter, multiple opportunities despite their failures. That same God is working in Jonah's life just as he works in our lives today despite our failures and our shortcomings. But what we've been talking about or thinking about is how Jonah was in school um, with God. He was, he was learning the subject of God afresh. And in this episode, what Jonah will learn is that God's predominant attribute for everything that he is, his holiness, his, his, his just nature, his magnificence, his beauty, for all the things that God is, his predominant attribute is his loving compassion. Jonah's gonna see that in a powerful way in this chapter. And as I've been saying throughout this short little study in the book of Jonah, the prophet already knew this about God in some way, but what he needed was for who God is, God's nature to begin to seep into his everyday life and experience. In other words, at the end of the book, 
God is going to have a conversation with Jonah and Jonah is gonna tell God, the reason I didn't wanna go to Nineveh in the first place is because you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And so since you were sending me to Nineveh, I just had a a hunch that this was gonna happen and all these Ninevite people were gonna repent and that you were going to relent from the disaster that I was hoping you would bring against them. All right, so, so Jonah knows things about God, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, but he's not living out those things. And so he's learning about God. He's in school with uh, and about God. And I, and I think, as I've been saying, this book is designed to do the same thing to us. God was trying to, with all kinds of measures, connect or reconnect his unhitched man to himself, and God does the same thing with us through this book and in our lives. He wants us to connect to God's nature, to his nature. So the question is, what is God like? That's a great question to ask anytime you open up the Bible. By the way, what do I learn here about God? What is God like? And then we want to live out who God is. And Jonah's gonna discover here that God is one who relents from disaster Uh, that he is compassionate. But uh, even though I'm saying that, we might be a little surprised at how this compassion works. So for that, we need to look at the mechanics of the actual story. So let's read, uh, starting with the first four verses today. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, He'd learned his lesson the first time. So he arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right, in this teaching about God's compassion, the first thing I wanna show you is that part of God's compassion is that he will warn people. He will warn people. That's what God does here by sending his prophet Jonah to this town. Uh, Jonah has this very, very brief word of warning or judgment. He says in verse four, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, It's eight words in English. It was five words in Hebrew, so even shorter. So he has barely anything to say to these people which makes us wonder because, spoiler alert, they're going to respond really well. They're gonna repent of their sin and they're gonna seek God. They're gonna call out to God. So it makes many of us wonder, did Jonah say a little bit more than just these five words? Is this kind of like the encapsulated message? Was there more? Did he unpack it? Did he tell them what to do in response? Or is it just like, hey, look at your calendar, set it from four, for 40 days into the future, that day you're all gonna die. It's gonna be over. Was that the message of Jonah or did he say a little bit more? Now the passage really doesn't answer that question, but there are some clues that might tell us that perhaps Jonah said more than just these five words. First of all, look at verse three again. It says there that the city is described as an exceedingly great city, an exceedingly great city. Uh, It was obviously about the size of Nineveh, but the original language that's used there could also be translated a great city to God, a great city to God. And when you read chapter four, 
One of the things that you're gonna discover, and we're gonna talk about this next week, is that God loved this city, not just because God loves cities, and he's like, oh, they're just so interesting, they have the best coffee shops and you know, stuff like that, but because lots of people live in cities. So God loved Nineveh because lots of people made in his image were living in that city. So it's possible that there's a little hint there, an exceedingly great city, God thought of it that way. Secondly, there's another clue. Uh, When Jonah comes along, he gives the message that there's going to be judgment in 40 days. It's a timeline that Jonah gives to them. And it's not hard to imagine how people who are receptive to the message, as the Ninevites were, would conclude that the 40-day time frame uh, was supposed to be, hopefully, perhaps a chance for them to get things right, to turn things around before the end of that 40 days came. Another clue is found in the last word of Jonah's prophecy. It's the word overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now clearly the Ninevites understood that as a word of warning, but many scholars have pointed out that that word overthrown is also used in the Bible in a secondary way. It can either mean overturned in destruction or it can mean turned by repentance. And so perhaps the people of Nineveh, when they heard Jonah pronouncing that they would be overturned in destruction, were hoping that they could avoid that destruction by turning themselves in repentance. And that's clearly at least what they're going to try. And the last clue, at least that I'll mention, that perhaps Jonah said more than just these five Hebrew words, is found in the repentance of the Ninevite people. The king, in verse eight, will tell the whole city we need to turn from the violence that's in our hands. A very specific thing that he wanted them to do, a very specific sin that he wanted them to turn from. It's very possible that when Jonah was declaring God's judgment to them, he said, and there are reasons for this judgment, one of them being the violence that's in your hands. And we've already talked about previously in going through the book of Jonah how brutal the Assyrian Empire was at that time. They were a violent people. So perhaps Jonah said a few more words than just these five words, but it's also, on the contrary, not hard to imagine Jonah saying to himself, I'm gonna say as little as I possibly can to these people. God told me technically that I have to tell them that in 40 days he's going to overthrow them, and that's all I'm gonna say to them. I don't want them to be saved. I don't want them to apply this. I don't want God's judgment to turn from them. At the end of the day, what was happening here is that whether Jonah said a lot or a little, the Spirit of God intervened for the people of Nineveh and began to stir their hearts towards repentance. But the emphasis here is that Jonah came with a clear word of warning. Now, when we think about God's compassion, that might not be the first thing or the first element that comes to mind. We think of compassion as kind of a squishy, soft, Uh, approachable kind of word. But here I'm talking about God's compassion. One of the first things we see is that God comes, he sends his messenger with a word of warning. A lot of people think of this and, and examples like this in the Bible as an example of God being threatening. As if God is like a bully in the schoolyard threatening. If you don't behave in a certain way, then this is what I am going to do to you. The assumption there is that God somehow could turn off his holiness. 
that somehow God could turn off his righteousness and allow evil and sin and brokenness and guilt to exist unpunished if he wanted to, but he can't. That's not who God is. His nature is to ultimately vanquish all that is broken and evil and unholy forever. God's aim is to remove all of it, but the thing that we're learning here is that he doesn't just do it in an unsuspecting way, he is gracious enough to give a warning about it. Now, Jonah's word is less like the threatening of a schoolyard bully and more like the warnings posted around a power plant. You know, warnings telling you, hey, be careful. There's something powerful inside of these gates. There's something uh, that could really hurt you inside of these gates. You need to be cautious on the ground that you're walking on. And that was what Jonah was doing. He's saying there's a righteous power within God and you Ninevites have been so cruel for so long that you're now going to be shocked by his judgment. But God is willing to give that warning to them and that warning was meant to produce repentance. And that's what's gonna happen at the end of the episode. God will unleash his compassion on the Ninevites and he will withhold his judgment. But he'll withhold his judgment only after they repent of their crimes. And they would only repent of their crimes after Jonah gave them the word of warning. I think if we're honest as Christians, the many of us here are Christians this morning, I think if we're honest Many of us would have to admit that this is probably a significant reason why a lot of us are a little bit shy about sharing the gospel with other people. You know, the word gospel is a word that means, you know, technically good news. So we think of it as good news. It's the best news. It's the great news. Uh, but it really, if you think about it, is good news because there is bad news. You know, if you were to say to someone, hey, good news, uh, chemotherapy can cure you, uh, you also have to kind of tell them the bad news, you have cancer. And that's the idea of the message of the gospel. The reality is that whether it's in 40 days or 40 years, all of us have to give an account to God. And if we're not forgiven and cleansed and washed of our shame or our guilt, the evil that we've thought, the evil that we've done, uh, then we also will be separated from the presence of God forever. We'll, we'll experience the judgment of God. But the good news is that through belief in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of all of that in our lives and we can be brought into God's forever presence and into God's forever family and in his, into his forever kingdom. But this bad news is often uncomfortable for us as Christians to share but it's part of God's compassion to be honest with a broken humanity. All right, let's look at the second movement though of the passage. God has shown his compassion by sending a warning, but let's see what the people of Nineveh do. It says in verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Right, so if the first thing I'm trying to show you about God's compassion is that he warns, the second thing I want you to see, and I'm not gonna go with all W's today, but it's that God waits, God waits. Here he's waiting for the people of Nineveh. He gives them time to respond. And what it says is that they, in verse five, they believed God. They believed God. Uh, By the way, when it says that they believed God, it's the same exact wording that's used to describe Abraham in the book of Genesis when God made big promises to Abraham. Abraham believed God, the Bible says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In the New Testament, Paul uh, used that instance or episode in Abraham's life to declare Abraham the father of the faith, that when God makes these promises to us in the gospel, If we believe, then God deposits righteousness into our account. The same phrase used to describe what Abraham did is what the people of Nineveh did. The same phrase is used to describe them. And the reason that I'm mentioning that right now is because, and some of you guys might know this already, historically speaking, after Jonah came to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and there was this big revival, at some point in the future, A generation or two or three later, the Ninevites and all of Assyria, they reverted back to the kinds of evil that they were committing when Jonah confronted them in the first place. And it leads many people to ask the question, was the repentance of the people of Nineveh actually sincere? Was it false repentance? Was it an ungodly sorrow? You know, like, oh, we just got busted, this fish swallowed prophet has come to be with us. And so for a couple of months, we're gonna be zealous for God and we're gonna repent of our sins. Was it something real or was it something false? Well, Jesus, he seemed to believe it was real. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 11. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus seems to have thought that the repentance of that generation of Ninevites was spot on, that they were sincere in their repentance. It doesn't shock me at all that in a generation or two later, this culture walked back into the evils that they had been previously committing. That's part of human nature. But their repentance of that generation, according to Jesus, seems to have been legitimate. And what incredible repentance, radical repentance it was. One of the notes that's made here is that it started where? It started with the people, right? It didn't start with the king making laws and edicts and telling everyone you need to behave righteously. It started from the bottom and went to the top. It's beautiful when it happens that way amongst a people group. It it began that way with the people. Uh, Everybody in the city, they clothed themselves with sackcloth or these garments that were meant to indicate we're sorry, we're guilty, and we have 
uh, contrite hearts over the things that we've done. And then eventually the king heard about it, it says. And once he learned about it, he also seemed to have repented in a genuine way. He issues this proclamation for everyone in the city to stop what they're doing and to begin calling out to God. And his reason for doing this is because he said in verse nine, who knows, God may, God might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Uh, he was hoping for mercy from God. Uh, he even went so far as to make all the livestock in the city uh, fast and also be clothed with sackcloth, which kind of sounds weird to us. Like, why would you do that to a bunch of animals? It's very possible that he just had some weird theology. You know, he's like, he doesn't know. He's just learning about God for the very first time. So he's like, I guess the animals need to repent too. Uh, but it's also possible that this was just kind of their version of flying a flag at half-mast or painting a funeral car or hearse black as a way that their culture understood we are grieving what we've done. There's something wrong with us. Now, like I said, we don't really know why they responded this way. We don't know if Jonah said more than this. We don't know if there was background, you know, natural disasters that had occurred that had kind of primed them for this moment. We don't know exactly why, but the one thing we can know is that God was moving at this point among the people of Nineveh. In other words, what I want you to know is that God produced this massive revival. It was God doing this. Uh, God was, as Paul the Apostle said in 2 Timothy Chapter two, verse 25, God was granting them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's what God was doing. God was at work in their midst. And I wonder if we would be praying for people that we know and love, or that we don't even yet know but should love, that God would prevail upon their hearts just like he did upon the Ninevite people. But these people, they had hope. They're like, okay, we're heading in the wrong direction. Maybe if we change our direction, God will have mercy on us. Uh, you guys know that famous book by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. I always have the Scrooge McDuck version in the back of my mind. But there's that one scene in the book and where the ghost of Christmas future shows Scrooge his lonely future, his lonely grave, that he's gonna be alone. Everyone has left him and turned from him. And he said to the ghost of Christmas future, he said, men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which if persevered in, they must lead. These courses must go that direction. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it thus with what you show me. In other words, he's pleading with the ghost of Christmas future. I know you're showing me where my life is headed, but isn't there a chance that I could change the way I am today so that my tomorrow doesn't look like you've shown me? He hoped that he could change course. And it seems that the Ninevites were hoping for the same thing. They wanted a different future. And fortunately for them, and also fortunately for us and all of humanity, God's nature is to respond when we turn and repent. 
Listen to what God said to the prophet Jeremiah about this very thing. He said, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. In other words, what God is saying here is he's saying, here's what's truly unchangeable in me. I will warn, but when people repent, I will respond with my mercy. That's who I am. That will not change about me. And this hope that God would reverse course, it's what drove the Ninevites to reverse their own course. One author said it this way, the hearts of the violent can be overthrown by the mere possibility of God's compassion. That's what was happening with the Ninevite people. The mere possibility of God's compassion caused them to act the way they did in repenting of their sin. Now, now before we see how God responded, I want to point out two facets of their repentance. Okay, the first thing I wanna point out to you is that, and this might have already been obvious to you, but everybody in the story is the opposite of Jonah. The king, the people, they're all anti-Jonah, opposite Jonah. I mean, think about the king, first of all. What happened when God called Jonah? When God called Jonah, what did Jonah do? He got up, he went to Joppa, he got into a boat, he covered himself with some blankies, and he took a nap in the boat. He headed in the opposite direction of God's will. When the king of Nineveh heard God's command, heard not even God's command, but God's promise or warning of judgment, he got up, arose, it says in verse six, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He's the opposite of Jonah. The people were also the opposite of Jonah as well. Uh, they just had this one prophet with this really short prophecy but they responded zealously in obedience to God, like obedience to the very last degree with just this little teeny word from the Lord. But when God gave Jonah very clear directions on precisely what to do, Jonah did not obey God. He did the opposite of what the people of Nineveh did. Nineveh and the king's obedience were a rebuke to Jonah. And I think it's probable that they were also serving as a rebuke to the people of Israel. You know, the, the people of Israel, they had lots of prophets. They had an entire Bible of revelation from God, but they were not responding to it the way that the Ninevite people were responding with just one prophet who said five words. For that reason, the Ninevites' response, and I say this kindly, it's probably meant to sting us a little bit too, if we're believers today. You know, when I, when I bought this Bible, I think it was maybe 10 years ago, I went on Amazon and I searched for a Bible and I quickly found, oh, that was not specific enough. So I had to decide what kind of Bible. Well, I wanted one that would last a while, so I didn't want a fake leather cover, I wanted a true leather cover. I'm sorry if that hurts some of your feelings, but that's what I wanted. And then I discovered that, well, you can't just get true leather. You have to decide what 
kind of leather. And then after you've picked what kind of leather, you have to pick how old you want that animal to have been before it became leather. And then I was able to pick the binding and the color and the font size and what kind of cross-references I wanted in the middle and how many bookmarks I wanted, if I wanted study notes or if I didn't want study notes. I had all those things at my disposal. You know, we have apps on our phones that tell us what the Bible is about, that explain it to us. And if we really think about it, we're living in a time in human history where there are so many free resources at our disposal explaining the word of God to us that we have an opportunity to understand the Bible that is unlike any human generation ever. And perhaps the people of Nineveh who heard five words from one prophet and responded like they did are meant to be a little bit of a rebuke to us, right? Okay, the last thing, though, that I want to mention about their response is I want you to notice what their repentance produced. Um, In verse 8, the king said, we need to turn from the violence that's in our hands. We've been treating people terribly, and we need to turn from that violence. Now, this is really important because when Jonah came, Jonah preached the truth, and they responded by refusing to treat others violently. I say this because I think we live in a time where some churches make the mistake of only emphasizing one and not the other when both need to be emphasized. Uh, Some will emphasize things like serving the community or feeding the hungry or sheltering the poor, turning from the violence in our hands, while others will emphasize preaching the truth, you know, like Jonah, declaring what God said. But both the preaching of the truth and the pursuit of what we would have to call a biblical version of justice, both of those things are required. The truth of the word should lead to transformed lives that seek to transform the world in which they exist. And when we live this way, what we're doing is living out our new citizenship in heaven. We're operating, as one author said, as a colony of heaven in a country of death, colony of heaven in a country of death. All right, so God waited, and the people of Nineveh, they did what every generation should do. They called upon the Lord, so what did God do? Let's read it in verse 10 to wrap up our time together. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, this is God, his compassion is to warn, his compassion is to wait, but here his compassion also responds. God is compassionate, so he responds. Uh, They turned from their evil way, it says, and God relented of the disaster that he said he would do. Now, some people have a problem with this verse. It's a little bit difficult for them, or verses like these, Because one of the doctrines that Christians hold to is called the immutability of God. It means that God cannot change. Uh, Like it says in Hebrews 13, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And so some people seeing God in an episode like this, like he said he was going to bring judgment, and then it says that he did not do what he said he would do to them. He did not do it. And so the 
thought is, did God change here in this moment? Uh, to me, uh, it's just a case of not being able to see past anthropomorphic language. In other words, language that's just human, trying to describe the actions of a God who's so far beyond us. This is just a human way of describing the human perception of what God did. But some people will even take passages like these to say that God is not in control, that God does not have a sovereign plan, that he's not sovereignly set the future according to his will, or perhaps doesn't even know what's going to happen. Uh, but I've already highlighted the Jeremiah 18 passage where God stated that he would not judge a nation that he'd promised to judge if they repented. This seems to be the implied nature of God's word of judgment. He's saying at all times, I give that word of judgment, but it doesn't have to be. In other words, God is not the one changing here, but Nineveh was changing in relation to God. Because of their repentance, they had shifted from being under God's judgment to now under God's unchanging love and forgiveness. You know, like um, if you were standing in front of a pillar on one side of it and you shifted to stand on the other side of it, the pillar has not changed, but your perspective of it, your view of it has changed in that moment. And that's the same thing. Nineveh's shift changed their experience of God, but it did not change God. But what this passage seems to show us beyond giving us a little moment of theological debate is that God's overriding and primary attribute for all his holiness, for all of his righteousness, for all of his purity, his overall overriding attribute is his compassion. And he is all of those things. He's holy, righteous, just, and pure. But when people respond to his warnings with repentance, God is prone to compassion. His compassion kicks in. And it's beautiful compassion. It's not the kind of compassion that so often we might imagine or invent in our own minds. It's a compassion that dances in harmony with his holiness, with his righteous anger, with his justice. I say this because a lot of times in our modern time, people will describe God as compassionate, but kind of at the same time mean that God is very permissive, uh, that he's uh, spineless. Uh, that's not compassion, that's a, that's a jellyfish. That's not compassion. Julie Slattery said it this way in one of her books. She said, instead of worshiping a God of compassion, we have made compassion a God unto itself. Ignoring God's call to righteousness and holiness, I can be moved by compassion to excuse and condone almost any sin. And people often do that. Even in the name of Jesus, they will approve of sins that God clearly has denounced in his word or has denounced in general revelation in the cosmos. But God's compassion, listen to me now, it's, it's not an impotent weakness that settles for life as it is. God's compassion is a powerful force that transforms the hearts and lives of the willing. So God does what he does and he saved the people of Nineveh here because of his compassionate love. You know, last week we saw Jonah in the belly of the fish. What was the pinnacle of his prayer? He concluded, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Here, God saves the people of Nineveh because salvation belongs to the Lord. And why does he save? Well, because he's compassionate. He's driven by his compassion. Okay, but as I wrap this up, some of you guys might be objecting a little bit that really all that God did in this episode was save the people of Nineveh from himself. I mean, they're the people of Nineveh just kind of doing their thing. God sends his prophet of doom and God saves the city. But, but you're saying all he did was save the city from himself. Well, in one sense, the assessment that God was only saving Nineveh from himself, it's untrue, and I'll explain why. When God pronounces judgment, as he did through Jonah, it's a declaration of what sin is already doing to people. In other words, Nineveh was already being overthrown as a result of their violent manner of life that they'd adopted. There was no way that this Assyrian culture and society was gonna last for very much longer. They were destroying themselves from within, and that is part of God's judgment, his design for humanity. Their bad way of life, in other words, was destroying them already, but God's 40-day timeline just simply expedited the process that they were already under. But in another sense, the assessment that God saved Nineveh from himself is absolutely true. As a holy and righteous God, God is rightly angered by humanity's sinful actions. The Bible teaches us that his slow and long-suffering anger, it's stored up against all evil. He's going to destroy it all because he is, in a pure and righteous way, very angry about it. So in one sense, God did save Nineveh from himself when in his compassion he relented from his judgment. And I think that God does the same thing today. Cultures and societies have chosen ways of living that are slowly killing those cultures and societies. Just as ancient Rome died from within, so modern societies are dying the long death because of the philosophies on which they are built. And that long death is part of God's judgment. Paul the Apostle said it this way in Romans 1:18. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. What did he say? He said, he didn't say it will be revealed. He said it is being revealed. Look around. A society without God eventually begins to destroy itself, burn from within. But the beauty of our God is that he does so much more than institute this long death. The compassionate forgiveness of God is available to us because he sent his son to die in our place. The son embraced this mission gladly and because he died for our sins while he himself was completely sinless and because he rose from the dead, all who believe in him can be cleansed by him. God came to die, in other words, not for the good people, not for the best people, not for the perfect people, but for people like the people in Nineveh, people like us. If you trust Jesus, the Father will see you just like he sees his only begotten son. In the book and movie, The Green Mile, uh, John Coffey is 
one of the main characters, the main character, he's wrongfully accused and is an inmate on death row. Uh, But he has this supernatural gift, it turns out. He can, through human contact, take in the sickness and disease of others and transfer it to others or take it into his own body. And when he does that, it causes him great pain. There's great personal cost. Well, a greater than John Coffey has come. Jesus rescued us through great personal cost. God's compassion, in other words, that I'm talking about today, it cost him dearly. Because he is holy, he could not merely dismiss our guilt, just write it off. If he did that, God would be in denial of his very nature. He cannot let evil and sin exist unjudged. But his compassion drove him to judge it by consuming it in his own body on the cross. There was no one else to pass the judgment to. It was either us or himself. And praise God, he chose himself. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.